people think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Priscilla. This smells like houses in the Hampton Champagne toast down in Brazil Smells like anything you think could happen Probably will Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Brittany, Clint, myself, and Sam, as usual, on the news. And then we're joined by comedian Gaster Amante. That story that I'm telling, it might be my story, but it's the story of this country. My word for this week is about sometimes stepping back so you can see better. And I forget when I started driving, and I was a good driver at a Crown Victoria, my first car, which is a huge car. I got pulled over once. So the officer's like, your taillights are out in My father had just let me have the car and I hadn't checked any of those things. And what I remember is like getting out of the car later and realizing that sometimes the only way to see the whole picture is by removing yourself from the situation for a little bit so you can see better. And I think that sometimes we are so deep in relationships, in our work, in our craft, in our hobbies, that we miss some things. We miss big things, we miss small things. But in the end, we're missing things that we need to know. And it's really been on my heart this last week is that like sometimes we just got to step back a little bit so that we can actually see the things we love, see the things important to us, see what we're actually in a little clearer. Let's do this. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. Um, We are recording on Sunday, which means that we are less than 24 hours out from an incredibly tragic, frustrating, and most certainly preventable day in America. We saw two mass shootings separated only by maybe a dozen hours, one in Walmart Supercenter in El Paso, Texas, and one at a bar in Dayton, Ohio. Dozens of people are dead in both places, and we are coming here and processing this just like the rest of you. Yeah, I mean, this was yet another, at least the El Paso shooting, we're still getting details coming from the Dayton shooting, but the El Paso shooting, it's pretty clear that this was an act of white supremacist terrorism, uh, and it is the latest white supremacist terrorist attack in a long line of attacks uh, under this particular administration. This most recent shooting, the shooter posted a manifesto using much the same language about immigration that you would hear from pretty much any Republican politician, especially somebody associated with this administration. And, you know, this is not even the fourth or fifth or sixth of these attacks that we've seen with the shooter using language that is almost word for word, uh, the type of talking points that you hear from the Trump administration. So, I mean, it's just a sobering and frustrating and infuriating time to live in and and to experience, knowing that a lot of this is coming from the top, right? This is rhetoric. This is a worldview that is being exacerbated and amplified by the president and by so many other people with power and a platform. And it just needs to come to an end. Every time there's a mass shooting, I think of how these are folks who woke up that day. They gave their kids breakfast. They helped them tie their shoes. Maybe they went to the park. They went to swim practice, soccer practice, went to church, and then went to a Walmart or went to a Costco or went to school or went to a mall, a movie theater. 
And just the idea that like these folks had no way of knowing, like so many victims of violence have no way of knowing what would happen to them. And it makes me think of how arbitrary it is. Arbitrary in the sense that we live in a moment in society in which no place feels safe and that it could be any of us at any moment. But it's not arbitrary in the sense that, as Sam pointed out, the target specifically of the El Paso shooting, to the extent that we know, was specifically targeting Latinx people. So in that sense, it is not arbitrary or random at all, and it is a reflection of the rhetoric and ideology um, that is being propagated every single day from the most powerful person in the world. I'm reminded of a few things. One is that the numbers are on our side, right? That like more people remember voted not for Trump than voted for Trump. So that is a good thing. So I've heard a lot of people say like, worried about this idea that there are not enough people who believe in what's right. And the numbers are on our side. The question is like, can we organize people in a way that actually combats voter suppression and gets around some of the loopholes that the right has used, but like the numbers are ours. So Remember that, people? The second is one of the things that broke my heart was seeing parents say, one of my friends uh, posted on Instagram, she was like, my daughter's actually afraid of going to high school because she thinks she's going to get killed. She's currently in middle school and she's like afraid of going to high school because to her, that's where mass shootings happen. And you're like, that is just wild. Like the number of kids who grow up in school becomes a place not only that they learn, but where fear, like they are prepared for active shooter drills. I remember when we had them and it was sort of a thing we just had to do. To think that now kids are like requesting them or kids are like buying certain book bags so they can participate fully is just, that's just such a sad reality that we've created. The third is that it seems like with these last two shootings, and again, a lot has happened, is that there's an interesting acknowledgement that I didn't anticipate. So you see Ivanka Trump tweet out this tweet that's like, white supremacy is bad. And you're like, Ivanka, you actually are upholding it in the White House, but like you perform this tweet for a reason. You also see Trump is actually deleting tweets where he's called immigrants invaders. Suddenly he's actually deleting them. And of course, you know, people have screenshots of everything he's tweeted. And that is sort of interesting to see this response. And Sam, what was your tweet? So my tweet was about the fact that there are more terrorists now who have cited Donald Trump and and his language uh, as an inspiration for their attacks on the United States than have cited any other person or organization. I mean, literally, we can run down the list, but I mean, this is El Paso, Gilroy, even Parkland, the Quebec mosque shooting, which of course was in Canada. We saw Christchurch. We saw the shooting of the synagogue in Pennsylvania. There are at least five or 10 other examples over the past two or three years. Uh, It's just very clear. The guy who sent the bombs to Democratic uh, officials and philanthropists, I mean, this is a trend, right? This is a clear pattern and it needs to stop. We know what the solutions are. You know, there are a lot of people who want us to believe that we need more studies. It was so disappointing to see Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, say that this was a mental health issue. The best thing that I saw, somebody said that white supremacy is not a disease, it's a decision. And that, I think, is just so clear to me. Like, we need to treat it as a decision and make sure that we don't uphold the people who make those choices and we don't protect them. And just one last thing. In El Paso, people who had been shot were scared to go to the hospital because they were afraid that ICE would be at the hospital and would try to get them or members of their family. I think that's so emblematic of this moment that we're in, that you have a mass shooting that is preventable, and you have people who are shot in that mass shooting who are afraid to go to a hospital because they're afraid that they or members of their family will be deported. Um, And that broke my heart in ways that I can't even express. I think 
these are the moments when it's on us to educate people as why we shouldn't be shocked about these outcomes. The number of people walking around saying, this isn't my country. I've never seen a country like this. Maybe not in your lifetime. Maybe not in your skin. Maybe not in your neighborhood. But the fact of the matter is white supremacist patriarchy depends on violence. There is suspicion that the shooter in Dayton, Ohio, was either racially motivated and or that domestic violence was involved with this. White supremacist patriarchy is all about power. And in order to exert said power, violence is not an aberration from that. It is baked into the design. It is part and parcel with this thing. And so, yes, it's disgusting. Yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it is tragic. And certainly these incidences shock the soul. But they aren't surprising if we are clear-eyed about the monster that we're dealing with. I'm also just thinking about how many folks say this is an intractable issue, but so many other countries seem to be able to solve it. Countries that have a similar amount of wealth, similar populations, and countries that deal with similar challenges to ours. And we cannot continue to call ourselves world leaders. We cannot continue to paternalistically tell other people what they should be doing in their countries. We cannot continue to place ourselves as global moral authorities when at the very basic level of human life and dignity, we cannot seem to keep people alive. But I do want to make sure that we at least have some thoughts of hope. Hope can be really hard to find on days like this. And I found myself going back to one of my favorite quotes from Dr. King. He says, one of the greatest problems of history is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is defined with the resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I hope that gives you some hope like it gave me today. If you need to borrow some hope, I know that the four of us have it for you. And I'm really hopeful and empowered by the fact that those of us who love people and don't hate them have the power to change this. So uh, pivoting to our news My news for the week is something I've been thinking about since the Democratic debates that we had last week. And one of the things that always comes up in response to the proposals by some of the candidates is this idea that they just want to give away free stuff. And like certain people just want free stuff or are going to vote based on hoping to get free stuff. And, And a lot of times the rhetoric around the people who want free stuff, in air quotes, is not so subtly suggesting that the people who want free stuff are black and brown and immigrant and people living in poverty. I tweeted a little bit about this this past week, but I I think it's important that when we consider the idea of free stuff, it's important to remember that the entire bedrock of intergenerational economic prosperity across white America is built on the government having given white people centuries of quote-unquote free stuff while purposefully not giving those same resources and opportunities to others. And so if we want to go through a list of examples, you can talk about, obviously, there's slavery, something we talk about here all the time, 
Four million enslaved black people in 1860 were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined. Then, after emancipation, received zero recompense for 250 years of free labor. There's the 1790 Naturalization Act in which only, quote, free white persons of good character, end quote, could be naturalized citizens. Only white people could vote, serve on juries, hold office, own property. White racial preference in immigration didn't end until 1965, which is 175 years later. Then there's the Homestead Act in all of its different iterations, which gave away hundreds of millions of acres of land west of the Mississippi, almost exclusively to white people, providing the bedrock for millions of white families to build homes and businesses and intergenerational wealth. Even before that, there was the 1830 Indian Removal Act, which forcibly relocated and often killed Cherokee, Creeks, and other indigenous communities to make room for white settlers to come take over the land. Then there's the Social Security Act of 1935, which, as many of you know, was created to guarantee Americans income after they retire. But as we've talked about before, it was written to purposefully exclude Black people from having access to its benefits. Ira Kath Nelson's book, Fear Itself, is a central text on this if you want to learn more. There's the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which granted unions the power of collective bargaining, which is a good thing, except that those unions often excluded Black people from its membership, which is obviously a bad thing. It was written into the law that they could do this, that they were allowed to discriminate, and it made them able to keep Black people from accessing all the benefits that unions and collective bargaining have brought about in the labor community. Then, of course, there's the Federal Housing Administration and the practice of redlining. There's covenant houses. Between 1934 and 1962, the federal government backed $120 billion of home loans, and more than 98% of those loans, 98% went to white people. And then there's the GI Bill. Uh, the bill helped white Americans accrue wealth in the post-war years, but it did not deliver on those promises for black people. It shut out 1.2 million black veterans who had served a country in World War II, but were denied access to the benefits of many parts of the New Deal, including the GI Bill, which allowed people to go into universities and get their degrees. So, you know, there are economists who estimate that up to 80% of lifetime wealth accumulation depends on the intergenerational transfers of assets and resources, meaning that the systemic advantages of whiteness are passed down from parent to child to grandchild to great-grandchild and so on. So the benefits of each of these laws and policies that we talked about and the dozen more that there aren't time to talk about are designed to specifically benefit white people and they compound themselves across each generation, which put differently, lots of people are getting things that they didn't do anything to earn themselves. So when you hear people talking about a reluctance to give away free stuff or they shouldn't get free stuff, this country wasn't built on people getting free stuff, know that that is not true and that for centuries, white people have accumulated wealth and power and resources that other communities never could because they got free stuff that other people didn't get. So all that's to say the problem with this idea of free stuff is that people are reluctant to give away that stuff to people who don't look like them. And that is not just a hot take that bears out in the social science. So Clint, I think that this bears repeating when you said that this is borne out in the social science because, I mean, there is a whole rich literature that has examined the willingness of particularly white people in this country to support giving people free stuff and how that willingness to support policies that would, let's say, invest in expanding access to education or homeownership or healthcare or unemployment benefits, this whole range of different policies that are often described as handouts or or welfare, it turns out that when it's perceived to be a white person who's going to be receiving those benefits, white people are more likely to support it. 
And when they believe that it's going to be people of color who are more likely to get those benefits, white people are less likely to support it. So what we have here is not so much an ideology of not supporting the government giving people free stuff, but what we have is an ideology of white supremacy, which supports the government giving all kinds of free stuff to white people in particular while denying it to everybody else. These are the opinions and ideas on which government policy is built, on which the New Deal was built, on which the Homestead Act was built, uh, on which a range of different policies that were described in race-neutral terms, but functionally were implemented in ways that completely gave all of the stuff to white people, whether it's homes or education, and denied all of those things to black and brown people. And that's sort of how the racial wealth gap was created in the first place, building off of a legacy of not only denying black people wealth, but treating black people as property, and then building on that with public policy during the Jim Crow era that further exacerbated that gap in resources. The good news is that we're now seeing candidates, uh, at least on the Democratic side, really proposing policies to make a real dent in that gap, whether it's the baby bonds proposal from Cory Booker, whether it's the homeownership policies proposed by Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris, these are policies that can substantially impact the wealth gap. I mean, we're talking about impacting it 25 or 30%. But again, I mean, these are just really a start when we're talking about what's actually needed to close these gaps and achieve racial equity. We all know the story, if you've been listening to this pod for a while, that we could not build the same wealth, that we did not have the same ownership, that we simply didn't have the same access for generations. And that is continuing to manifest in people's everyday lives. But if you know that story, you then are probably asking, what's the solution? And to your point, Sam, it is about ensuring that we do the opposite of what has been done. So we were in a place where it was race-neutral language in policy that was not at all race-neutral that helped create the situations that we're in, in addition to all of the things even before that era that were racially specific. But it means that now the candidates that you are looking at, presidential mayoral, city councilor, alder person, state legislature, district attorney, everyone, that they should not only be building race-conscious policies, but policies that are geared specifically toward racial justice. And there are foundations that have developed racial justice tests to actually look at policy. And even if you don't have access to all the research, Talk to a black person, talk to a brown person, talk to somebody who comes from a marginalized community, because chances are we can see down the road and around the corner to tell you this could have some unintended consequences for people like me and those in my family. So we need to not only see candidates building race conscious policies, but doing ones that are specific toward how they will remedy racial justice. And if they can't answer that question, then they shouldn't be our candidates. You know, I think with this, like, my advice as organizers and activists is, one, to remember that we made a lot of progress before and that it was stifled. You've heard Clint talk about Reconstruction and what happened post-Reconstruction before. The second is that, like, part of what we have to do is, like, fight for the world we think we deserve, not the world we think we can get. And I think that that's one of the things that AOC has done so interestingly is people ask her, how are you going to pay for it? She's like, how you pay for all other stuff, Right. And it makes me actually think of, Clint, something you tweeted, which was a passage from Mercer's book. Mercer uh, was on the pod a while ago, like a year ago almost, to talk about her book, The Color of Money. And uh, Clint, the passage you tweeted recently was about Black people believing in the Freedmen's Bank. So the bank was set up. Black people believed in it. And nearly $3 million in deposits. And that was in 1874. So that's a lot of money with 61,000 people. And then they essentially shut down the bank. And what it notes in the book, and Clint, this is the part that you highlighted, 
is that more than half of accumulated black wealth disappeared through the mismanagement of the Freedmen's Savings Bank. And you're like, that was intentional. The wealth existed and then was wiped out. And of course, no recompense was made. But like, we actually can push the government to do better by people. I'm looking forward to the end of the Trump administration because what is really interesting about all the activism is that most of the presidential candidates are running on agendas that would have seemed unlikely 10 years ago, would have seemed probably radical five years ago. And it's like, it's not radical to think that everybody should have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's not radical to think that people should be able to pay their rent every month and not have to sacrifice food or other things for those things. So I'm excited to see how we can like continue to push. So my news is also historic in nature. A few of us, myself and Clint, live in the DMV area, as we like to call it, the District of Columbia, Virginia, and Southern Maryland. And there is an elite private girls' school, Georgetown Visitation Prep, here in D.C. that we have learned a lot about in recent days. So apparently the lore of the school was that it was founded by three nuns who they know had owned slaves, but that they defied the law of the district at the time and taught those slaves to read by allowing them to attend school on Saturdays. But the school's archivist and historian has actually dug into some documents that show that not only is that story not true, but that the truth is far more sinister. The truth is that the three nuns owned 107 enslaved people, men, women, and children, from about 1800 until 1862, which is the year that the federal government made enslaving people illegal in the District of Columbia. Of those 107 enslaved people, several of them were sold off to pay debts and fund new buildings for the school. So again, not only was the last story not true in this kind of benevolence that people were imagining not true, but what was actually true was that the very buildings that folks are sitting in, the land that was tilled that they enjoy, was done so by enslaved people and the selling of enslaved people. What I find really fascinating is that, to be completely honest, the lore, the myth, which I wasn't familiar with until I read this article, was even in and of itself an issue for me. It dismisses the sin of owning people in the first place. It treats owning enslaved people like it was simply the custom of the time and supposedly the nun's benevolence essentially bleaches that sin. But the truth of the matter is that even if that were the story, that's problematic enough. Of course, now we know that the story is even worse and even more sinful. But I wanted to bring this here for a couple of reasons. One, that we should never, ever forget that privilege will always soften the truth in order to preserve its own righteousness. And that down through the years, a story like this will become softened and softened and more refined and more refined, such that at the end of the game of Broken Telephone, you got a story that makes three nuns who owned people not look all that bad, and in fact, look benevolent, like saviors, like good Christian people. The other thing that we always have to remember is that the economy of this country was built on the backs of enslaved people and on the land of indigenous people, and that no matter how we want to craft or cajole the story, that it is impossible to separate the ways in which privileged people and classes of wealth continue to benefit from the sale of enslaved people. 
So this is a reminder, I think, as we have a conversation about reparations, particularly in the federal government's role, not only in perpetuating the system of enslavement and never making amends for that, but recognizing that the federal government isn't the only institution that ought to be involved in this reparations conversation and that ought to be providing reparations to folks who they've played a direct role in harming and enslaving, right? I think when we examine the historical record, in addition to the federal government, there were many corporations, some of which are still around today, that either invested in the institution of enslavement or actually were actively involved in transporting and kidnapping people who were enslaved. I mean, there are academic institutions, there are private companies, there are a whole host of different institutions and organizations and companies around today that ought to be engaging in a conversation about their past and making amends to the people who they have wronged, the descendants of those who they've wronged. Previously on the pod, we talked about Georgetown and some of the work that they've begun to do to uncover this history and begin to provide scholarships and a bare minimum amount of reparation to folks who are descendants of those who were enslaved by the founders of Georgetown. I'm hopeful that more and more institutions and companies and organizations will start that same process as we continue to demand the federal government to do the same. A common retort from people when we think about like recompense for slavery, reparations for slavery, is that like, well, you know, Clint, like, Nobody in my family owned slaves, or my family was from the North, and so we didn't participate in the slave trade, or this and this and that. And I think, as we talked about, like it is important to remind ourselves again and again and again that slavery is not something that simply benefited the South. It is not something that simply benefited the families who directly engage in the practice of slave trading and enslaving Black people, but that it was the sort of larger economic collateral that allowed the United States economy to function for three centuries, rather. And as we were talking about, Marissa Baradarin, the legal historian at UC Irvine, and in her book that I've been revisiting, and it's just, it's so rich, I can't recommend it enough, The Color of Money. She talks about how, like, enslaved people were not just the labor in the cotton production process, they were the collateral used to finance the operations. Slavery modernized credit markets, it created complex new forms of financial instruments and trade networks through which slaves could be mortgaged, exchanged, and used as leverage to purchase even more enslaved people. Many white people in the North and in Europe, even after Europe abolished slave trade, continued to build fortunes on trading slave-backed securities even after it had been abolished again in places like England and in various states throughout the North. And so it's important to disabuse ourselves of the notion that the economic benefits of the institution were limited to people who directly participated in it because it was entangled in every facet of American life for the vast majority of our existence. Brittany, I had no clue that the nuns were up here at Biden selling slaves. Clint and Brittany, because y'all are in D.C., maybe Sam, has anybody ever been to the D.C. Museum of the Bible? I have not. No. I asked because at the D.C. Museum of the Bible, they have the Slave Bible, if any of you have heard of the Slave Bible. The first Slave Bible that we have a copy of was published in 1807, three years after the Haitian Revolution. And your news made me think of the Slave Bible because the Slave Bible is interesting in that most of the Old Testament is missing and only about half of the New Testament is in the Bible because slave owners were worried that another rebellion or revolution would happen. So, for instance, in the Slave Bible, there is no Moses. He's just gone. Revelations doesn't exist because they were worried about this idea that God will rain down justice. So that is gone. Uh, and then they got rid of a whole set of passages like Galatians 3.28 that people know. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. 
for ye are all one in Jesus Christ. Like all passages like that are literally just erased. And there's not a clear historical record about who was the person that uh, requested and made the slave Bible, but they know A, that it existed because they have a copy, but B, because they can track this across the South specifically. And I thought that was fascinating, like a reminder of how religion has been used to oppress people. I knew that passages in the Bible, like about slaves and about slavery, had been used to justify slavery before, but I had no clue that there was actually an edited Bible that was mass-produced for slaves so that they would be as compliant as possible and think that that was actually the Word of God. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Your home is your place of peace. It's clean. It's welcoming. (sighs) And it's definitely not crawling with invading insects if you use Ortho Home Defense Max. 
Use it indoors on non-porous surfaces to treat and prevent cockroaches, spiders, and ants for up to 12 months. So your home can stay your place of peace, your work-from-home office, and your family's headquarters. Kill bugs inside, keep bugs outside, and love your home. Visit ortho.com for more. So my news is also somewhat historical, and it's about Mississippi. So Mississippi, this Tuesday, so if you're listening to this on Tuesday, August 6th, it is primary day. And the primary is a setup for the general election, which is going to be in November. Now, what's interesting about this is there is a lawsuit currently going on, and Eric Holder is actually leading this lawsuit against the state of Mississippi for the way in which Mississippi conducts gubernatorial elections. In particular, Mississippi has a system of electing governors that started in 1890 with the adoption of the state constitution in 1890. And again, you'll recall that this time period was around the same time period that we saw a number of states adopting white supremacist constitutions after the end of the Civil War and after emancipation as an intentional strategy to suppress and disenfranchise the black vote. So, you know, in Florida, they were passing the felony disenfranchisement law and poll taxes. In Mississippi, in addition to all of those other things, they also passed a provision that's now in the state constitution that requires candidates for governor not only to win a majority of the popular vote, but also to win a majority of the 122 districts within the state. So the reason that this is important is because the Black population in Mississippi is fairly concentrated within cities. So therefore, to win a majority of the districts, it's been estimated that it would require a candidate that had the support of Black voters. It would require that candidate to get about 55% of the popular vote. So winning the majority of the votes isn't enough if you are a candidate that is most likely either a Black candidate or a candidate that Black voters support, because you not only have to win the majority Black districts, but you have to win a number of majority white districts as well to clear that requirement. So this is the subject of a lawsuit, and it's still pending. But what's fascinating about this is that First of all, Mississippi has never elected a black governor, despite being the state that has the highest proportion of black residents. About 38% of the state is black. It has never elected a black governor, in part because of this type of provision, as well as a whole range of other voter suppression provisions. So Mississippi is the hardest state in which to vote in, and that is not a coincidence. So I wanted to talk about this because, you know, it is a reminder that we haven't even completely dismantled the old Jim Crow, let alone the new Jim Crow. We just partially dismantled felony disenfranchisement in Florida through Amendment 4, although the Republicans continue to fight on that. And lo and behold, a number of other Southern states continue to have provisions in their state constitutions that were enacted based on racist intent to dilute and disenfranchise the Black vote that continue to be in effect today. So one of the things that I think is fascinating about Mississippi, uh, so in Mississippi, there's a constitutional convention in 1890 to amend the Constitution. The Constitution from the convention in 1890 is the remaining constitution in Mississippi. One of the constitution's framers, his name is James Bardeman. He is quoted as saying back then, he says, there's no use to equivocate or lie about the matter. Mississippi's constitutional convention of 1890 was held for no other purpose than to eliminate the N-word from politics. 
So it's actually clear, like the record is clear why they made the decisions that they made. There are a lot of things about Mississippi that I didn't know. In 1870, when Mississippi rejoined after the Union, former slaves made up more than half of the state's population. So you think about what that means and all of a sudden people will be able to vote. It makes sense, though, because Mississippi sent two Black senators to Washington and elected a host of Black state officials, including a lieutenant governor. Then 1890 happens, the end of Reconstruction. And what you see is a couple things. One is that Mississippi is one of the first places the poll tax. And what I didn't know about the poll tax, I'd always thought a poll tax was like, I don't know, you have to pay to vote. That sort of made sense to me in its insidiousness. What I didn't know in Mississippi was that the poll tax, you actually had to pay it for two years before the election. That is even more wild. And Mississippi is one of the birthplaces of the literacy test. And not only was the literacy test, as you can imagine, biased and racist, but even people who could read The way it was written was that the clerk actually had the sole discretion to decide whether you could read. And also in Mississippi, same period of time, they put together a grandfather clause that said that you essentially are automatically registered to vote if your grandfather was a member of the state of Mississippi before the Civil War, which, you know, only functionally benefited the white people. But I just had no clue. And I'm happy that Holder is suing Mississippi And it's just a reminder of how much happened after Reconstruction where people took away so many of the rights that had been won in a hard-fought way. I find myself very interested in a comment that the lawsuit cites from, at the time, the president of Mississippi's Constitutional Convention, who asserted, apparently, that Black control of government, quote, meant economic and moral ruin, and apparently that the state had a, quote, overgenerous number of Black voters. First of all, that sounds eerily like these infestation comments we keep talking about, like, oh my God, there are too many Blacks. But what I also find incredibly curious about that passage itself is an assumption from white people that if Black people in Mississippi have any kind of power and control, that it will automatically mean their ruin. What that says to me is that there was a recognition of white supremacy, even if they're not going to name it that, and that what they were afraid of is retribution for what they have done to other people, that white supremacy was going to be replaced with Black supremacy, and that in the end, Black folks were going to ruin them for (laughs) ruining Black people in the first place. And, you know, we often talk about never becoming the hate that we are fighting. I just found that quote so telling, so fascinating, and so clear in its belief that Black people not only are immoral, but that if given the opportunity that we would carry out the evil that was visited upon us. It is, in my opinion, a clear acknowledgement of the fact that what they were doing wasn't right in the first place, but they weren't really going to come out and say that. Yeah, I'll just end by saying that I think Sometimes people can look at the large Black population of Mississippi, which is uh, 37% of Mississippi is Black people, uh, far higher than almost any other state in the country. And people can look at that and then look at the sort of electoral outcomes. And this is one of the sort of underlying themes of our podcast and what we think about and talk about. But what can happen is that people can say, oh, look at all these Republicans who continue to get elected in Mississippi, even though Black people are almost 40% of the population, I guess Black people just don't care enough to go out to vote. And if they actually got out there and did what they needed to do, then the electoral map of Mississippi would look different and would potentially benefit that population more. That's how pathology works, right? It allows you to look at a phenomenon that's happening and not take into consideration the sort of larger sociopolitical and historical phenomenon that shape why 
certain communities look one way and certain communities look another way. And that the reason that Mississippi's electoral landscape looks the way that it does as compared to its demographic landscape at large is because of profound, deep, and like ongoing voter disenfranchisement. And it's also making it so that all of the black populations in redistricting, which is, you know, one of Holder's big things, in the sort of redistricting and gerrymandering of districts in Mississippi, they make it so that black populations are in certain pockets. And so they limit the sort of electoral and political power of black populations by drawing these lines that don't even make sense just so that they can capture all the black people in one place. And so then you have one black representative in this place, but then the sort of larger map remains in the power of people on the right. And so just a reminder to like dig a little bit beneath the surface when we think about why certain outcomes look the way that they do. So one of the other reasons that we continue to see these outcomes electorally in Mississippi, where you have Republicans continually getting elected, sometimes by fairly wide margins, to statewide office, despite there being large Black population, is that it's combining the voter suppression, both new forms of voter suppression like voter ID and old forms of voter suppression like the state constitution. It's combining that with highly polarized voting from the white population. So the white population in Mississippi votes overwhelmingly for Republican candidates. So the only way that you can sustain a 50% plus one majority vote, despite, you know, let's say 40% of the population voting, you know, 80 or 90 or even 95% for the Democratic candidate, is if white voters vote 80%, 90% in favor of the Republican candidate. And lo and behold, that's what we see every single time. And that's also not a coincidence because the research tells us that those counties that had larger numbers of enslaved people all the way back in 1860, white voters from those counties today are more likely to vote for Republicans today. So all of this is connected back to that history, not only in terms of policy, but also in terms of everyday sort of voter behavior and vote choice. Okay, so my news is about the group homes. So you know that ICE is detaining about 55,000 adults a day. We also had somebody on the pod, an expert, to talk about the officer refugee resettlement, which is actually the part of Homeland Security that detains kids. There are about 10,000 kids in detention right now. And the apparatus of the federal government was never staffed to have that many kids in group homes or shelters. So legally, they have to be in a group home. They can't be. The law says that they are not supposed to be housed with adults. So as you can imagine, the question becomes, like, where do the kids get held? Because there's a shortage of space, that is why the Trump administration has said that they're putting kids in tent cities, that they literally just don't have enough providers. So there's a recent study that just came out that focuses on one provider specifically, but it's a global thing. And it focuses on New Horizon Group Home, which got its license revoked to run shelters and group homes in North Carolina in July of 2018, just five months after they admitted their first person because of a host of issues. They actually just got awarded a $4 million grant by the federal government. Remember, because they don't have a license, they literally cannot operate any facility in North Carolina. They also should be prohibited from receiving money, but the federal government said they don't care. New Horizon is actually appealing the audit that got their license revoked and saying that it was flawed. They used to care for kids 9 to 16, but the regulators found that the conditions just weren't even safe. And quote wrote that they present an imminent danger to the health, safety, and welfare of the clients and that emergency action is required. Now, what's interesting is that there are a host of organizations like this. Uh, There's another one that they cite in the article. There are two that they call out, including New Horizon, where neither of the providers is licensed. Both of them have already received grant money, which is in direct conflict with the law itself. 
I talk about this for two reasons. One is we mentioned it sort of before a lot of episodes ago, but like there are going to be a lot of the Trump circle that are going to become millionaires off of the crisis around immigration that he has created that you think about the sheer amount of contractors that upholding the apparatus will require is astounding. It'll probably take a decade to really uncover that. And then the second is that we need to pay close attention to the way people are given contracts at the federal government, especially around our kids. So not only should the kids be free, if they are going to be held in any capacity, like they should definitely be in facilities where people know how to deal with kids. And you just see the trauma being exacerbated by the wanton disregard, of both for the emotional, physical, and socio-emotional health of young people, but also because they're just trying to get rich. I often think about the money part here. Because sometimes you can find yourself just sitting and trying to figure out what in the world is the end game. What is the end game of changing all of these laws and regulations and making all of these small and large decisions, some of which we all know about and some of which, frankly, I think we're going to be finding out about even after this administration is over. And what is so clear to me is, yes, it's white supremacy. Yes, it's patriarchy. Yes, it is all of those things. But it is also just outright greed and that For a guy like this to run for the presidency in the first place, when he had already amassed, in theory, a great deal of money, a great deal of fortune, a great deal of, you know, real estate holdings and certainly a household name given his television shows, what is the point then of being president? Especially when you don't even really seem to like the job and you don't actually do it most of the time. And what I keep coming back to is greed, how to make more money, how to secure more contracts, how to be bigger, badder, faster, bolder, how to have more inroads to foreign entities, and how to make sure that your friends are rich too. And yeah, there are lots of other things here, but I keep coming back to outright greed. I was doing some research on this, and in 2018, ICE reportedly had around 41,000 people in detention, and that number, I imagine, would be higher now, which is an increase of more than 10,000 from the year before, according to Reuters. Uh, As many as 72% of those people are held in privately owned facilities, according to data from the Urban Justice Center's Corrections Accountability Project, mostly managed by two massive companies, which is the Geo Group and CoreCivic, formerly known as Correctional Corporation of America, which in 2017 earned a combined $985 million from contracts with ICE. $985 million. This is a reminder that this is a money game and that one of the other things about this is that corporations get paid whether or not the beds are full, which arguably provides the government an incentive to seek out prisoners so that they are not wasting money. And so there's so many different levels to this, but follow the money. Yeah, I mean, you know, this reminds me of an analysis that I read a couple of weeks ago that estimated it was about between $700 and $800 spent per day to detain immigrant children in detention centers per child per day, right? And and you think about all of the things that $800 a day could be spent on to actually help folks, right? To actually help these kids, provide them with resources that they need to connect them with their families, money that could be spent on a whole host of priorities that are so important. And instead, the money is going to private corporations in many cases and some public agencies. I mean, there are also local and state governments that are making money off of contracts with ICE to house immigrants per day, right? So everybody's making money off of this, except folks who are being mistreated, right? We're talking about folks making money off of mistreatment, profiting off of folks being detained. And, you know, in many cases, the $1 billion per year estimate 
um, with regard to immigration. I mean, if you look at the system of mass incarceration as a whole, the Prison Policy Institute looked into this. They estimated $182 billion per year spent on mass incarceration as a whole. And this is our money, right? This is taxpayer money that is going to warehouse people, to detain people, to put people in concentration camps. And I think that that has to stop. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows there's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop And now my conversation with Gaster Almonte. Gaster, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. I want to talk about the comedy album you made, Immigrant Made. But before that, when did you decide to become a comedian? Or when did you know that comedy would be the work that you would be doing for your life? Like, what was that like? So uh, most of my adult life, I was actually a sales manager. I was a sales manager for... Uh, Fortune 500 company. I started directly in sales, like uh, root to root sales, like literally selling food to like supermarkets and stores. And uh, when I got promoted, I was a little concerned, you know, with like uh, my ability to like talk in front of large groups and make presentations. So uh, I happened to read an article in uh, Inc. Magazine, I think it was, that said uh, a ton of like Fortune 500 CEOs had taken stand up classes in order to get better at presenting. So I convinced one of my cousins to take a class from me. And uh, we took the class, yeah. And and uh, at the class show, the class show was held at uh, Gotham Comedy Club in their like downstairs room for like uh, trial shows and like newer comics. And they had their main shows upstairs in the main room. One of the comics from the main room was hanging out just to check out the new comics. I did really well. I had no idea who he was because, like I said, I was just doing this for work reasons. And uh, he finds me afterward. He gives me a ton of advice, gives me his name. I still don't know who he is till I get home and Google him. And uh, it's Roy Wood Jr. Wow. So uh, I literally saw him go from like a working comic to like now daily show and putting out specials and seeing what's possible. And uh, he really pushed me to kind of pursue this full time. So uh, here I am. That's such a great story. Did that class help you become a better public speaker before you made the commitment to comedy? 
I would say more so it just made me aware that I was actually better at it than I thought I was. Up until that point, I wasn't aware that what I did all the time was public speaking. Every uh, Sunday, my whole family literally gathered at my grandma's house for years. And all the men would like tell stories together in like a circle about like their work week or whatever the case they were dealing with, uh, you know, landlord issues or things of that nature. So from being a little kid, we weren't none of the nephews, cousins, sons weren't allowed in the circle unless you had a really like cool story that week. So every week from like age five, six, seven, I was trying to get in this circle and I was slowly the only kid that they would let sit in the circle and listen to these grown-up stories. So it was cool for me because, like, if I told something of merit that they wanted to listen to, I was now allowed to listen to, like, my father talk about hanging out at a bar and taking a beer and his brother doing something stupid that <laughs> normally my mom would kind of disapprove of me listening to. So it was just real cool to kind of get that approval. So that class kind of made me aware of like, oh, wow, uh, turns out I've been doing this in some capacity for, you know, 20, 30 years. I love it. I love it. I, I wouldn't have thought before talking to you that people actually responded to those um, public speaking sort of classes or that they did things like transform your whole life. Like that is, I didn't expect <laughs> you to say that. I love it. Take us to Immigrant Me. Why comedy album? Why this one? This album, um, Immigrant Made, I wanted to make it because it was a point that I wanted to kind of drive home now. I felt adamant that I had an hour that went together and had a coherent message, and that's why I wanted to do this. And I felt that not only did it have a message, but that it was topical at the moment. I felt that it was an important thing to spread. So Immigrant Made is literally the story of an immigrant family coming to this country, setting up roots in East New York, Brooklyn, which uh, it's a tough neighborhood, and they establish themselves, and you hear the stories from all the generations of it. You know, my grandfather literally learning and accepting a new role in the family as his kids become the caretakers and providers, the struggles that my parents went to while they transitioned here, my own struggles as a kid in this neighborhood and the things that were possible and how I learned information that kids in other neighborhoods might learn differently to now with me as a parent and a landlord and how I'm raising my own family in this neighborhood and in this country and how I've benefited from the sacrifices that my fam made before me. So I wanted to make sure I told that story because, you know, like right now we've been dealing with a lot of issues in terms of how immigrants are viewed in this country. And for the most part, I don't feel like it's in the positive light. When I really sat down and thought about it, that story that I'm telling, it might be my story, but it's the story of this country. I feel like when I told it to other people, you know, Italian folk were able to tell me about their background. It might have been 30 years further back, but it was the same thing. I want to talk about East New York. What part of East New York are you from? I grew up on Pickin and Montauk. We actually still own the house that uh, I grew up in. I love it. I love it. Well, I taught at Frederick Douglass Academy 8, which is at the end of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's awesome. I went to... uh PS 345. I love it. I love it. What did your parents make of the album? It's such a personal album and you tell so many stories. What was their response? It was tough, honestly, because initially I had to convince them and like get their permission to tell it. My mom, um, her instinct was to hide that story. While I look back at it fondly because I know what she's achieved, uh, you know, she was like at that point, that was a shame of mine that I couldn't provide and figure out answers for you and that you know a lot of what i was able to achieve only was possible because of somebody else's willingness to be helpful while i was asking for a random help on the train trying to find a college so she was like you know it was almost a point of uh, shame for her because 
you know, as a parent, you want to be able to always provide. So it was, it was tough for her to see herself as the hero that I see it as in that story, you know, which is a, a parent willing to do anything to better themselves in order to be able to provide more for their kids. It took a, a lot of back and forth to let her see that most people would see it the way I see it now, not the way she saw it, you know, uh, when it was happening to her. Was your dad just okay with it from jump? Uh, he he's uh, he's grown to be okay with uh, with my stand up. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> the two things that uh, got me on Comedy Central early on were both stories about his unorthodox parenting. So um, because of that, he's kind of accepted that I'm going to talk about him and the family. In terms of uh, pursuing comedy in general, he wasn't quite on board. You know, I did have like a career going and. What I'm doing now is, you know, thankfully working now, but there was definitely times where he saw a huge economic difference between what I was making and what I made before. And he's like, you know, now I'm concerned about your well-being going forward and my grandkids. But uh, he's uh, seen my level of commitment and work ethic that I apply to it. So he's on board now. But uh, that wasn't the case when uh, this started seven years ago. I'll say that. And how has your own fatherhood impacted the way that you appear on stage, if at all? Yeah, so so that was a, a big part of my decision to do comedy in general, right? Like, my brother's 18 and my sister's 17. My kids are now 9 and 10. And I found myself regularly being almost like a hypocrite when I told them you could be what you want. And, you know, while I had a good job, it wasn't my dream job. It wasn't a job that, you know, I jumped up every morning and was, like, excited to do. So here was this chance where, like, I found something by accident that I was really passionate about that I could do every day and that was fun and fulfilled me as a person. By the same token, I feel like I have a responsibility to talk about the East New York that I grew up in, and I feel like I have edgy content in that regard. I try to represent my neighborhood as authentically as possible, but a part of that also is showing that not every story about East New York is scary or dangerous. I'm a family guy, and I convey that with a lot of my stories. You know, I tell love stories about me and my girl and you know, now wife and how we met up together. I might tell it in the East New York way, you know, but uh, I feel like it's important to show that people from there are more well-rounded than people realize from afar. And I want to convey that to my kids because I want them to know that they can develop fully as people, even though they're there now. And I know that in the album, you explain concepts like gentrification and some other seemingly complicated topics uh, to them. Have you had other parents come up to you and give you feedback on the way that you explain things to your kids or the way that you talk about it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I do think there's a balance between uh, how fast you uh, tell the truth to your kids and uh, being truthful to your kids. I think that uh, you kind of have to ease them into certain things and certain realities. So that's kind of what you're seeing on the album on those moments. You know, when my son's asking me about, you know, the white people moving into East New York, that was me trying to balance that, trying to decide how much of this can I share now to make sure that he's aware of what's happening and that he can take ownership of his neighborhood and yet by the same token still be welcoming to a kid that, you know, had nothing to do with the decisions his parents made to move here. And then, uh, you know, balance that with the fact that as he gets older, I want him to be someone that's an advocate for the East New York that his father grew up in and for the East New York that's more reflective of him and uh, the people that grew up there and that came there originally, you know, so it's a balancing act. Uh, so you're, you're seeing a lot of that literally there. And in terms of other parents, I get a lot more Facebook messages than uh, face to face confrontations with that. A lot of the parents from uh, my kid's school are now aware that I do comedy and uh, 
they don't necessarily want to confront me at the school for some reason. I don't know if I scared them. I'm like 300 pounds. I'm six feet tall. I think while I'm funny on stage, like when I'm walking around East New York, I don't know if that's the guy you want to like tell him, hey, I don't like how you uh, explained that to your kid. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I get uh, far more Facebook messages uh, about uh, my content. Most of the parents are actually supportive, though. They're on board with the idea. I also wanted to ask you, you said you're a landlord. What is it like being a landlord in New York City of all places? And how has that impacted the stories that you've chosen to tell? So I am 100% sure this is the hardest place to be a landlord because you have the most informed tenants in the world. Like, it's not even close. So they're very combative when they first arrive because they've had bad experiences elsewhere. And uh, I try to, like, smooth that over. And then in terms of some of my uh, longer-term tenants, it's been really cool to kind of be able to provide a place for uh, people from my neighborhood. It's it's one of the biggest uh, debates that I have regularly with my parents because, uh, you know, we own property together. And it's a regular struggle of do we take the highest paying tenant that might not be from here or do we take a local person that might pay a little less? But in turn, we're helping someone who's from here stay here. And it's a regular juggling act that we're doing. Um, sometimes what side of the argument you're on changes. And it's something that's coming through in my comedy um, because, like I said, it's the reality of my situation in my life right now and of anyone in East New York. There are a lot of people who will listen to this episode and have been a little frustrated with comedians in the past because they feel like comedians are making light, making sort of fun of things that aren't necessarily funny. Immigration, some of the immigration issues, sexuality, identity that comedians have continued to make jokes of. And in this political climate, they don't seem that hilarious. How do you process the thin line between something that is funny and something that people experience as mean or bigoted or hateful? Well, I think that uh, with comedy, there's a challenge, right? Like in the sense that a lot of comedians feel an innate responsibility to talk about anything that's uncomfortable. The general public has a different way of processing information about the news that's happening, right? They want to make sure that what they're saying is politically correct because they don't want to offend people. And I think that's important. That's something that shows me that overall people are trying to do the right thing. By the same token, in order to do the right thing, you need to be able to talk about the uncomfortable topics so that we could figure out what the right thing is. Comedians happen to do that earlier than most people, in my opinion. The way they do it might not be the way you think is ideal because they're doing it by, you know, poking jokes or, you know, making it seem like a smaller topic. But what they're doing is they're starting the conversation. I think it's important to do that because, again, I, I, I don't think a lot of other people would. I think it's important to drive those conversations, to bring them up. And as long as uh, you're doing it from a place of interest and from genuine curiosity as opposed to doing it with malintent, I think it's cool. I, I think it's completely acceptable and I think it should be applauded. And, you know, there are a lot of young people, not even just young people, who want to do work in comedy. What's your advice to them? Yeah, so... For new comics, I feel like it's important to find out who you are first. I think that's the biggest thing. Figure out who you are as a person, how you feel about things. Because if you don't have that, you won't have an opinion on stage. If someone's talking about a sensitive topic and they haven't thought through how they feel about it, besides uh, being funny or not, you might offend somebody and it will be over something that you didn't even mean. It'll be over something you didn't believe in. So I feel like you should always... 
figure out who you are as a person and how you feel about a topic before you address it on stage so that when you do, the only thing you're defending is, is this funny? But you believe in the stance and you're trying to start conversation in an honest way. I think that's cool from there. There are a lot of people who've done all the things, who protested, emailed, called, voted, and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? I feel like hope is something that is what you think about when you don't have control of a situation. You know, like I hope for uh, my kids to do well in 20 years. You know, I hope that they have a good profession, but that's too far out. When I think about hope, it's always about situations when I don't have control. So when you think about the way that things are going right now, if you're in a situation where you feel like you're lacking control or if you're thinking politically that we're in a dark place and we don't have control, I want you to remember that there are steps you could take to take control. I feel like there are things you can do to change your situation and consistently and slowly build towards the future that you want. And when you think of it that way, you slowly eliminate the need for hope. And we do think about hope is uh, work, not magic, right? Amen. And what's a piece of advice that you got in the years that you'll never forget? Uh, I, I got to go with my grandfather here. He said, uh, sometimes you got to clean the grill. So my grandfather uh, used to make really good uh, grilled chicken, you know, like barbecue style almost in DR and after doing it a few times, sometimes you got to clean the grill off and start over again. And I feel like that's something that we need to embrace in general in life. You know, uh, no matter how many times you try something, if it doesn't work out, sometimes you just got to start over and do it again. I like that. Sometimes you got to clean the grill. I like that. Well, guys, so thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Can't wait to stay in touch with you and uh, see what's next. My man, thanks you so much for having me, man. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Party of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.